Well, it's great to hear all the prayers and concerns for Ukraine. My family is actually from Ukraine about 100 years ago. My great-grandparents lived there and actually hailed from the Donetsk area, which is uh, an interesting connection. But just prior to the Russian Revolution in around 1917, my uh, great-grandparents could see it coming, and so they decided with their parents to try to get out of what was then the Soviet Union, back when Ukraine was part of the Soviet Union. But of course, they, you know, trying to get out would have been unthinkable uh, in those particular circumstances. My great-grandfather uh, incidentally played clarinet in Tsar Nicholas's band, which is kind of neat. And he, he always had his clarinet with him. I can, um, I, he died before I was born, but his clarinet was still around when my great-grandmother would often talk about how he always kept his, his fingernails immaculate because that's somehow contributed to his playing the clarinet. I don't know. But in order to get out uh, back then, they had to fake their passports. My great-grandmother got a passport of a little boy, and she was so petite that she was able to you know, fix her hair and put on a hat and get out of the country looking like a little boy. They got on a cattle boat and uh, went, they actually made their way up from Ukraine all the way through Europe, and I forget where they left from Europe to cross the Atlantic, but they got on a cattle boat for three months. Imagine that. And she, by the time she got on the cattle boat, she was entering into her final trimester of her first child. So imagine that on a cattle boat. Anyway, they landed at Galveston, and from Galveston, because they had, they had a sponsor up in the Denton area that uh, was going to take them and give them work. And so they landed at Galveston, got on a train from Galveston, and went all the way up to Denton. My, grand, my great-grandfather spoke Russian, uh, German, and like several other languages, but English was not one of the languages he spoke. And so when they got to Denton, they didn't know to get off. And so they passed, they passed Denton, and I forget they went, how much further they went. They had to stop the train and back the train up all the way back to Denton. And uh, finally got off, and they farmed 100 acres just outside of Crum, Texas, where my family hailed from, which is how my family got in this area, or at least my mom's side. But um, it's wonderful to think about family history, and family photos are a wonderful way to remember those things. I was just looking at my calendar. My great-grandfather's name uh, was Ernst. And his, uh, his birthday's coming up. It's like 1830-something, I think, was his birthday. It's pretty crazy. And would that be right? No, that couldn't be right. Anyway, that it's in the 1800s. Amazing. But family photos are great. And they're getting more and more rare because the more and more we take, you know, pictures with our smartphones, we look at photos on our screens. And we hardly ever share uh, photos anymore. Even uh, Facebook has become the family photos that we, that we share around. But actually having a physical family photo book that you look back in is uh, pretty neat to be able to look back at uh, grandparents, great-grandparents, and people of our past. Um, you see snapshots of younger parents, and one of the great things about photo albums is they, don't only, they not only save memories, they save reminders. Like, I don't know about you, but when I see old family photos and I'm in it, 
I think, what happened to that shirt? <laughs> I don't know about you guys, but do you ever have shirts just disappear? <laughs> it's like, you know, I didn't throw that away, but it's gone. Clothes just disappear, and uh, then new clothes reappear. So, I, well, I guess I'll wear this. Uh, but sometimes it's fun, you know, you forget, wow, you know, was I that thin? You know, did I have that much hair? And, uh, or you look at somebody's handwriting when they were young, and it's the same as when they were old. It's just wonderful to see the memories that family photos give. But family photos also summon painful memories. Um, maybe true in your family as it is in mine that there are people that smiled alongside us in photos in yesteryear that we find conspicuously absent today and not necessarily because of death but because of painful decisions that have caused them to no longer be part of the family. And they become like the elephant in the room that we keep quiet about. You know, we never talk about them and the mere mention of their name is almost like a prick of a pen that draws blood. It's tough. Whenever I see these pictures of long ago and I remember the pain associated with some of these memories, it's actually encouraging because it reminds me of how God, somehow, God has given the remarkable strength in our family to keep going in spite of the things that we have endured. Growing up in a Christian home, as many of us did, gives us no guarantee that you're going to follow God. You may have a heritage that goes all the way back 100 years of people that followed God, but it's no guarantee that we're going to follow God. On the flip side, you may have a family that didn't follow God. You may have grown up in a godless context, but that doesn't doom you to a failed life. As we heard earlier, it's, it's a matter of our own decisions, and we're going to get up and follow God on our own. And of course, God is also very involved in the whole process. Remember, just this week, uh, Kathy was visiting her mom, and she came home with a story I'd never heard before. Kathy's mother, her name is Myrnie, was helping her mom. So Myrnie was a little girl, and Myrnie was helping her mom sort clothing. I think they were over at Myrnie's grandmother's house or something. And so they were sorting clothing, and Myrnie was just this little child, you know, could barely talk, but old enough to think, which is a dangerous combination with a little child. But anyway, so Myrnie held up, and Myrnie's grandmother was a, a really petite, small woman. And so Myrnie held up, you know, some undergarment or something of, of her grandmother's, which was, of course, tiny. And Myrnie says, Who, whose is this? And the answer was, well, that, that's Grandma's shirt. And Myrnie says, Grandma's? She grew old before she grew up. <laughs> what a great statement. And I've thought, I thought about that, you know, in the last few days this week. I thought, you know, a lot, of, a lot of that is true with us spiritually as well, isn't it? That we have grown old before we've grown up. That we are still immature in the sense of our spiritual lives, and yet here we are, you know, in the, uh, in, in the end of our days, but we haven't necessarily grown up with God. We will settle for a child-sized walk with Christ instead of, truly pressing on to know Christ more and more. We just kind of content ourselves with spiritual maintenance rather than truly pursuing spiritual growth, no matter how old we are. Let's look together at Genesis chapter 38. 
Genesis 38. We are in a series that we've just started last time on the life of Joseph in Genesis. Joseph is a wonderful story of poetic irony. We'll see as the story unfolds all the way to the end, but the Bible loves poetic irony. Think about Haman being hanged on the gallows that he built for Mordecai. That is poetic irony. Think about Herod the Great, who, as the king of the Jews, did his best to kill the one he was told was the king of the Jews, born king of the Jews. And in Herod the Great's palace there in Jerusalem, which today is right by the Jaffa Gate, this were also where Pontius Pilate lived. At the end of Jesus' life, Pilate asked Jesus, are you the king of the Jews? So there's all this irony. But Joseph has irony baked in. And it's not just Joseph's life, but also, as we're going to see here in Genesis 38, it is a, uh, an irony in the life of his family. Now, we looked at, started last time in chapter 37, where the Joseph narrative best begins. Uh, we're really focused on him. And you remember the story. It's pretty simple summary. But Joseph is the favorite son of Jacob. Jacob has 12 sons. Joseph is the favorite. And his other brothers resent that. And they hate him for it. Not only that, but... uh, Daddy gave Joseph a coat of many colors, or basically this very colored coat that uh, distinguished Joseph as the heir apparent. And all the other brothers are like looking down at little brother going, you've got to be kidding. And then Joseph has dreams, remember. He has two dreams that say that uh, the family is going to come and bow down before him. Oh, that really ingratiated his brothers to him. And so what they did when they got the opportunity, when daddy wasn't around, they sold Joseph as a slave to Egypt. Got rid of that problem, now back home. They go back home, and of course their father's heart is broken when they they take Joseph's coat of many colors, dip it in a goat's blood, and then they go and they deceive their father as if Joseph has been ripped apart. Well, that brings us to chapter 38. And all of a sudden, Genesis takes a hard left turn. I thought we had just started the Joseph story, and now we got this whole chapter on Judah and Tamar, which is sort of weird until you look at the big context, and then it makes total sense. Look at chapter 38. We'll start right in verse 1. And it came about at that time that Judah departed from his brothers and visited a certain Adolamite, whose name was Hira. Judah saw there a daughter of a certain Canaanite whose name was Shua, and he took her and went into her. So she conceived and bore a son, and he named him Ur. Then she conceived again and bore a son and named him Onan. She bore still another son and named him Shelah, and it was at Chetzib that she bore him. Five verses cover years of time. Notice it starts and says about that time, meaning about the time that Joseph was sold to uh, Potiphar in Egypt, about the time that the brothers had returned home with the lie to daddy, about the time that daddy's heart was broken, Judah leaves. He departs, we're told. And the, the story sort of seems misplaced. I mean, it's almost like Moses wasn't paying attention with the flow of the narrative. How in the world does a story about Judah and Tamar flow with 
the story of Joseph. It doesn't seem to make sense. What does it have to do with Joseph? And when we ask that, which is logical, in fact, I've heard sometimes when preachers will preach through the, story, the life of Joseph, they just skip chapter 38. It's like, well, that doesn't have anything to do with Joseph. Just skip it and go straight to 39. But when we do that, we miss the bigger picture. It's not so much that what does chapter 38 or, or Judah and Tamar have to do with Joseph, but rather, what does the Joseph story have to do with Genesis, or even better, how does Genesis fit with the scope of the Bible? Because this is a much bigger issue than just Joseph. We tend to look at our, our passage for the day and think, you know, this is it, that there's hard boundaries around it. But the reality is it's in a context that is much bigger than simply our little passage for the day. Genesis 38, the question isn't so much, what does this have to do with Joseph, but what does Joseph have to do with the Bible? Joseph, God used Joseph to preserve the line of Judah, which is why Judah appears here, because this chapter 38 is all about the line of Judah, and Joseph's story is just a bigger picture in preserving the life or the line of Judah through ultimately who comes, the Messiah. So that's why Genesis 38 is so essential. Judah left home, we're told, verse 1. He departs. He turns aside, and he goes down to his friend, the Adullamite. Adullamite, that just means that Hira was, was from Adullam. If you were to look at a map, you would see that Hebron is the, uh, one of the highest points, actually, along the ridge of that area. And so for him to go down, he'd be going down, uh, down to the west, sort of you know, down to the west, like down toward the coast, into the lowlands there was an area of low rolling hills about 15 miles away uh, near the area of Adullam. And this is incidentally the exact same area, exact same area that uh, Samson would later wander down to visit all his women in the area of Gath. So it's sort of an interesting connection geographically to what Judah is also doing, as we'll see. But it says that this occurred at that time, meaning at the time that Joseph sojourned down in Egypt, and it represents many years. Notice that it says that uh, he had three sons in as many verses. First, he takes a Canaanite wife, which was a no-no. Judah shouldn't have done that. And she conceives, verse 3, a son, boom. Verse 4, another son, boom. Verse 5, boom, another son. The three verses, as many sons. And then in verse 6, we're told, Now Judah took a wife for heir his firstborn, and her name was Tamar. This represents years of Joseph being in Egypt. This is not, you know, just pause, and now all of a sudden all this life of Judah happens. What's happening in Judah's life is parallel right along to all the years that we're about to look of Joseph being in Egypt. This is years. We know that from the time that Joseph was sold, to the time that Joseph uh, reconciled with his brothers at the, at the end of the book, that it was 22 years. So this event that occurred at, uh, with Judah could have lasted basically that same time, and the math works for these three sons to be of marriageable age. Uh, it, it, the text seems to imply that Judah left right away. And, you know, you can kind of hardly blame him. Imagine what he was dealing with. He had come home. He, he was the one that actually suggested that they sell 
uh, Joseph as a slave rather than kill him. And so they, they do. And they come home. They break their father's heart. And they are, uh, they're dealing with the guilt of it all. And every time, every one of those brothers looked at each other in the eye. It's like, I know what you're thinking, and you know what I'm thinking. And it's like there is this elephant in the room. It's like you sit around the table, Joseph's seat is missing, and the family elephant has come and taken his seat. Everywhere we go, that stinking elephant is with us. And we have to think constantly about the fact that what we did to our brother and our father's continual crying will not let up. So Judah, I think, just says, I'm I'm out of here. I don't want to deal with this. And he leaves. And he goes and he he visits his friend, the Adolamite, and he marries a pagan woman, a Canaanite woman. And his sons, we're going to see, didn't fall too far from the tree. Look at verse 7. But Ur, Judah's firstborn, was evil in the sight of the Lord. So the Lord took his life. Then Judah said to Onan, this is the secondborn, go into your brother's wife and perform your duty as brother-in-law to her and raise up offspring for your brother. Onan knew that the offspring would not be his. So when he went into his brother's wife, he wasted his seed on the ground in order not to give offspring to his brother. But what he did was displeasing in the sight of the Lord, so he took his life also. Then Judah said to his daughter-in-law Tamar, Remain a widow in your father's house until my son Shelah grows up, for he thought, I'm afraid that he too may die like his brothers. So Tamar went and lived in her father's house. So the plot thickens here as Judah chooses Tamar, presumably another Canaanite, to be wife of his firstborn, to be the wife for his firstborn son, Er. Uh, But, of course, we're told that Er is wicked, so he's put to death. Then the second son, we're told, in verse 8, this is sort of an odd custom. It's obviously not a custom that we follow today in our culture. But back in this culture, it was common. And we'll see later in Deuteronomy that uh, God actually codifies this culture, this custom, that uh, if a brother dies and he doesn't have any offspring, that the brother is to marry the, the widow of his brother in order to raise up offspring that the firstborn son of that union would be considered the dead brothers so that that line would not die and it would continue. Well, this secondborn son says, sure, I'll marry her, but he, he just did it for the pleasure. And when it came time to actually conceive, the second son says, well, I won't be doing that because it'll be my brother's son. He was wicked, so God put him to death. And then Judah, realizing, you know, this is not a good pattern, doesn't want to give the third son. We don't know how old he was, but uh, Judah uses his youth as an excuse not to give him to Tamar and, and tells Tamar, you know, go be a widow in your father's house. When my final son grows up, then he can be your husband. And so he's basically stalling. And during this time. Well, Judah was really afraid that his final son is going to be killed as well. All three probably were wicked. And uh, so he sends Tamar back to to her father's house. So, verse 12. Now, after considerable time, Shua's daughter, the wife of Judah, died. 
And when the time of mourning was ended, Judah went up to his sheep shearers at Timnah, he and his friend Hira the Adolamite. It was told to Tamar, Behold, your father-in-law is going up to Timnah to shear his sheep. So she removed her widow's garments and covered herself with a veil and wrapped herself and sat in the gateway of Innaim, which is on the road to Timnah. For she saw that Sheila had grown up and she had not been given to him as a wife. When Judah saw her, he thought she was a harlot, for she had covered her face. So he turned aside to her by the road and said, Here now, let me come into you. For he did not know that she was his daughter-in-law. And she said, What will you give me that you may come into me? He said, Therefore, I will give you a young goat from the flock. She said, Moreover, Will you give a pledge until you send it? He said, What pledge shall I give you? And she said, Your seal and your cord, your staff that is in your hand. So he gave them to her and went into her, and she conceived by him. Then she arose and departed and removed her veil and put on her widow's garments. You ever wonder sometimes you read something and you think, Should that be in the Bible? <laughs> it's like, I'm not sure I'm supposed to read that. Should that be in the Bible? Judah's wife died. But even though Judah's wife died, Judah's desire for intimacy didn't die, which is such an interesting observation because if marriage provides God's protection against sexual impurity, what happens when that provision disappears? Does God suddenly furnish the spiritual gift of singleness to every widow or widower? Self-control still has to be a fruit of the Spirit. And if you think about it, in every area of life, not just this area, but in every area of life, it's great when God replaces something uh, painful with something wonderful or when he provides for a need in a context of lack. But what about when God takes away something that is a need or something takes away something that we enjoy? Can we then say what Job said the Lord has given? The Lord takes away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Well, that takes maturity, doesn't it? During the time when the Lord takes away something from us, it's easy to feel duped. It's easy to feel in our natural state, you might say, that, that uh, God is sort of like a, a drug pusher in the sense that he gives us blessings. He gives us a little sample, you might say, to use the drug pusher uh, metaphor. He gives us samples long enough to get the hooks in our hearts, and then he takes it away, and now we're stuck. It's easy to feel that way with the Lord's blessings. Satan's accusation of Job, again, is often right on the money for us. Does Job fear God for nothing? So often, we could ask that question of us. Does Wayne fear God for nothing? Does Clyde fear God for nothing? Or do we fear God because of what he gives us? And if God takes away what he gives us, then we don't fear God. This was Satan's accusation, and this is often our temptation, isn't it? We love and serve God more for simply what he gives us, but boy, it is tough. It is really tough to see our motivation when God takes things away from us rather than simply continuing to pile on the blessings. Well, plenty of time had passed. Tamar saw that Judah had not given the youngest son to be her husband, 
and the son was grown up. He was fully able to marry, but Judah still hadn't given him. And Judah's wife dies. So now this is sort of a double whammy. Judah is, is also vulnerable, you might say, in uh, the intimacy part of his life, but also it's for sure that she's not going to be giving any more sons to the deal. So this last son is the last chance, and Judah's not given the son. What's Tamar to do? Tamar had the right by the custom. You might also even say by the law to have a child by the nearest relative of Judah. Judah wasn't going to make it happen. So Tamar made it happen, didn't she? And did she make it happen? From our New Testament perspective, we look at what Tamar did, and, uh, you know, it's really tough to see it in a positive light, isn't it? I mean, after all, to put it bluntly, she deceived her father-in-law into having relations with her by pretending she was a whore. This is not something that we, uh, you know, stand up and chair during the praise and prayer time, is it? <laughs> but the motive behind her actions was anything but sensual. I mean, sex really had zero to do with the motive. That was just what had to happen in order to get to her motive, which was she had the right to have an heir through the nearest kin to Judah. Judah didn't make it happen. She made it happen. Tamar's deception of Judah, if you think about it, it kind of has an uncanny resemblance with Judah's mother deceiving Judah's father. You remember Jacob and Leah? How that went down when they started to getting together? Jacob, let's, in fact, let's turn back and look at it. Look at Genesis uh, 20. Look, turn back to Genesis 20. This is funny. This is like one of the best scenes in the Bible. Well, best in the sense of entertaining. Uh, I said 20. I'm sorry. Look at uh, 29. 29. Sorry. Abraham's a little too far back. Genesis 29. Look at verse 20. That's where I got my 20 from. 29:20. Now the deal. You remember the story. Jacob shows up in Padan Aram, running from Esau, and he tells Laban, the father of beautiful Rachel. He tells Laban, hey, I will work for you seven years for Rachel. Well, there was also another sister in the, in the plan, Leah, but he wasn't working for Leah. He was working for Rachel. Well, look at verse 20. So Jacob served seven years for Rachel, and they seemed to him but a few days because of his love for her. Then Jacob said to Laban, give me my wife, for my time is completed, that I may go into her. Did you say that to the father-in-law? Anyway. <laughs> Laban gathered all the men of the place and made a feast. Now in the evening he took his daughter Leah <laughs> and brought her to him, and Jacob went into her. Jacob also gave his maid Zippah and his daughter Leah as a maid. Verse 25, so it came about in the morning that, behold, it was Leah. <laughs> oh, I love that. That's like one of the greatest double takes in the Bible. It must have been really, really dark really dark but anyway this deception runs in the family this is this is my point okay now back to chapter 38 it runs in the family behold it was Leah <laughs> when Judah first saw, saw Tamar he assumed that she was a prostitute and as payment 
she promised a goat. I mean, that doesn't sound like much to us, but that, that was worth money back then. And in the meantime, she says, well, you ain't got the goat with you, so what are you going to give me until that I can believe that you're going to give me a goat? And then he says, well, what do you think I should give? And this opens it wide up. She basically said, why don't you give me your passport and your driver's license? <laughs> and Judah's like, okay. <laughs> hey, that's all it takes. So he hands over his passport and his driver's license. This is, in essence, what the staff and the cord were. It identified Judah. And she takes it, and all of a sudden, when it's time to pay back, we're about to see she's nowhere to be found, but she's still got the passport and driver's license. Look at verse uh, 24. We're back in chapter 38. Now, when it was about three months later that Judah was... Oh, that's not it. I'm sorry. I've gone too far. Uh, verse 20. Sorry, verse 20. When Judah sent the young goat by his friend, the Adolamite, to receive the pledge from the woman's hand, he did not find her. And interesting, he doesn't even go himself. He sends the friend. And he asked the men of her place, where is the temple prostitute who was by the road at Enaim? But they said, there's been no temple prostitute here. So he returned to Judah and said, I didn't find her. And furthermore, the men of the place said, there is, been, there is no temple prostitute here. Then Judah said, let her keep them. Otherwise, we will become a laughingstock. We, meaning me. After all, I sent this young goat, but you did not find her. In other words, I tried to pay. She wasn't there. You know, I, I, now I'm, I'm, I'm off the hook. Oh, brother, he is not off the hook. Not at all. Judah's friend is kind of an interesting, uh, the, the Hebrew here is interesting, that the friend, Hira, went to deliver the goat, and he tried to sidestep the enigma of inquiring about a harlot, and he asked and stared, it said about the temple prostitute. Temple prostitute is sort of a, a step up, you know, from your garden variety whore. You know, temple prostitute. And the guys are like, we don't have any temple prostitutes here. And so, you know, he just kind of leaves and goes hustling back. But she still has his passport and his driver's license, to which he thinks it's no big deal. And it turns out it's going to be a really big deal. Well, of course, it backfires because Tamar gets pregnant because of this union. Now, verse 24. It's about three months later that Judah was informed, Your daughter-in-law Tamar has played the harlot, and behold, she is with child by harlotry. Then Judah said, Bring her out and let her be burned. It was while she was being brought out that she sent to her father-in-law, saying, I am with child by the man to whom these belong. And she said, Please examine and see whose passport and driver's license this is whose signet ring and cords and staff these are. Judah recognized them and said, She is more righteous than I, inasmuch as I did not give her to my son, Shelah. And he did not have relations with her again. See, Judah discovered that it came about because of harlotry, and in his hypocrisy, he commands her execution. She simply pulls out the passport and driver's license to show uh, that, that you should have done all along what you all of a sudden recognize you need to do. Notice he didn't say, you know, yeah, golly, I'm the father. He didn't say that. He said, golly, I should have given my younger son to her. 
he realized exactly what Tamar was doing, that it wasn't that she was uh, in any kind of a, a, a sensual sense. It was she was claiming her right to have a child through the heir of Judah, and she got it from Judah himself. You know, we tend to focus on what seems to be the bad parts of this narrative, like Tamar. Really, is that the only way you could have done that? But what we don't emphasize is the lack of responsibility that Judah demonstrated. The text emphasizes that Judah was the one who was at the greater wrong because he didn't do his responsibility. In fact, he confesses this. Verse 26, she is more righteous than I. Whoa, that is a statement. It shows that his responsibility to do what was right was a greater error than anyone could say that maybe what she did. Tamar's words also did more than save her life, preserve the line, and expose Judah's sin. Unbeknownst to Tamar, they also cued the spotlight on that elephant that Judah had left to get, rid of, to get away from, the elephant of what he did to Joseph. How, does, how is there a connection to that? Her words, it's, it's subtle. It's here in the English, but it's subtle uh, in the English. In the Hebrew, it stands out with great uh, emphasis. And let's look at it together. In 38.25, in verse 25, notice she says, I am with child by the man to whom these things belong. And then she says these words, please examine and see. And then verse 26, Judah recognized. No, so see those phrases. Please examine, Judah recognized. Now, turn back to chapter 37. Chapter 37, look at verse 32. This is when Judah and his brothers give the evidence to Jacob. Verse 32, we found this. Please examine to see whether it's your son tunic. Next verse he examined it, or literally, he recognized it. In the Hebrew, it is identical. That what's happening here in 37 is being repeated in chapter 38, and Judah is going, wow, I can't get away from that elephant. God is not letting Judah get away from the elephant. So here is principle number one that's taken us a while to get to. But a couple of principles from our chapter here. Here's number one. God may use seemingly unrelated events to remind us of our responsibilities. God may use seemingly unrelated events to remind us of our responsibilities. We might also say to remind us of what we're running from. God is sovereign which means our so-called coincidences are his choices. And a lot of times we'll walk through life and we will see two completely unrelated things. All of a sudden, we make a connection, and we realize that could not be a coincidence. Judah made that connection. And Moses, as he writes this, writes it in such a way that we, the reader, make that connection as well. So we know Judah made the connection. Seemingly unrelated. You know, uh, what they gave to their father and now what she's giving to Judah, these are two totally different incidents, and yet the way it's written in the text brings them together to highlight for Judah that he has a responsibility that he's been dodging and 
You can't run from the elephant. You can't get away from it. So as, as we, next week, as we get back into the Joseph story, chapter 39, we realize that we never really left it in chapter 38. This is part of the Joseph story. It is part of the Joseph story. Judah wanted to get rid of the, of the Joseph story, didn't he? He wanted to get rid of it, which is why he left Hebron, but he couldn't. He couldn't get rid of it. And even though the text highlights Judah and not the other brothers, we know because we see them all prepared by the end of Genesis for the reconciliation with uh, uh, Joseph, that God's been working on them as well. Judah's highlighted, but we know the other ten brothers that did the deed, well, I guess, or the nine that did the deed, nine, the other brothers that did the deed. <laughs> God's been working on them as well. It's not just Judah. He, the Lord would not allow them to forget Joseph. The years passed, but their guilty consciences would not let it go. Um, have you ever tried running from God? It's tough to run from God. He can keep up. He is a good runner. Sometimes it takes us years to realize it, though, doesn't it? But God keeps up. And a lot of times we don't know he's there because he doesn't breathe heavy when we're running. But no matter how fast we run, no matter how far we go, God is there. And he's not just there to squash us. He's not just there to condemn us. In fact, I don't think he's there at all to do that. I don't think the text shows us that he's there to do that. But he is there to do like what he did in Judah's life to remind us. You're running. You're running away. I'm not going to let you avoid it. I'm going to continue to bring things into your mind, into your conscience. Events are going to continue to happen in your life that remind you of what you're running from. And I'm right here as soon as you're ready to repent. We see that later. In Judah's own words, we will see that later. But we can also see that in our lives right here, right now. God keeps up. And it's because he wants us to turn. Look at verse 27. So now Tamar comes to term and she's giving birth. It comes about at that time as she was giving birth that, behold, there were twins in her womb. Moreover, it took place while she was giving birth, one put out his hand, and the midwife took, a, took and tied a scarlet thread on his hand, saying, this one came out first. But it came about as he drew back his hand that, behold, his brother came out. Then she said, What a breach you have made for yourself. So he was named Perez, which means breach. Afterward, his brother came out, who had the scarlet thread on his hand, and his name, and he was named Zerah. Why in the world are these four verses here? Once again, God is not letting Judah forget that the firstborn, as it were, didn't come out first. How is that relevant to Judah? Because this is the way God has been working all along in this family. Abraham wanted Ishmael. God chose Isaac. Isaac wanted, I forget, Esau, Esau right. But, but God chose Jacob. Jacob wanted 
he's got 12 sons to pick from. He chooses uh, Joseph. Joseph's not it. Well, then, uh, Benjamin. Nope, Benjamin's not going to be it. God chooses Judah. And Judah's recognizing here, uh, this is how God deals with it. And again, he can't get away from it. Even in his own, the birth of his own sons, that uh, the firstborn isn't the one that has preeminence. It's the one that came out after that. Here's the second principle that we can get from our text. God's purposes for our lives will still be accomplished in spite of our family upbringing. God's purposes for our lives will still be accomplished in spite of our family upbringing. I almost said in spite of our lousy families, <laughs> but I thought I'd be a little more kind in spite of our family upbringing. God's purposes for our lives will still be accomplished. I think about all the things that could have gone wrong with my great-grandparents as they came over all the way from Ukraine across the Atlantic to Galveston and ultimately Denton and Crum, Texas. There's all kinds of things that could have gone wrong. But God made it happen in spite of their past. And think about your past. Maybe you were brought up in a home that honored the name of Jesus. And if, that, if so, then emulate the lives of your parents. Do all that they did that was right and be willing to say, you know what, they weren't perfect because you more than anyone know how your parents weren't perfect. And by the way, our children know the same thing about how we aren't. But your parents' godliness isn't inherited. You are your own person before God. Your success or your lack of success shows up in your life by showing up faithfully daily, making time with the Father a priority of your day every single day, embracing apologies and humility in your family. When's the... Mm, When's the last time you apologized to somebody in your family? Okay, you don't have to answer that. Just, just think about it. That's part of it. By letting our egos slide and believing the best, believing the best about your mate, about your children, about your siblings, about your parents, about your grandparents, and that friend of yours who has offended you. God was not asleep at the wheel the day he put you in your family. We've all had families that weren't perfect. Some were really not perfect, and some were, you know, fairly good. I don't know where you hail from, but it wasn't a mistake when God put you where you put you. You came from the wisdom. It came from the providence of his will. So our principles, once again, God may use seemingly, seemingly unrelated events to remind us of our responsibilities. As you go throughout your day and your week ahead, maybe you already know what it is that you're running from. God continues to remind you through events to urge you to repent. And it may be a little thing, it may be a big thing, but that elephant that you're running from is not going away. God keeps up your pace to remind you, and it's a blessing once we finally get to the point of saying, you know what? I just need to deal with that and to quit running from it. Second, God's purposes for our lives will still be accomplished in spite of our family upbringing. And that's a good thing. God has purposes for our lives in spite of our family upbringing. 
We see it in the life of Joseph. We really see it as it goes on. And we see it even in Judah's life. I mean, his whole little story is in this one chapter. Joseph, we get all these chapters, but Judah's story of his family and the pain in his family is in one chapter, and yet God's purpose for Judah was not uh, thwarted. One more thing about uh, Abraham and Isaac and all those people that, whose names I couldn't remember. Remember that Abraham almost jeopardized the promise of the line because right after God promised to Abraham, uh, it's going to be from Sarah, your son is going to be from Sarah, and it's going to happen this time next year. What happened right after that? He goes to Gerar and he lies about his wife. Abimelech takes Sarah into his harem. What potentially could have happened? The line could have been threatened. God intervened. In fact, God intervened, and a Gentile, Abimelech, had to basically come to the rescue and say, Abraham, this isn't right. Take your wife and go. Isaac later did the very same thing at the very same place, Gerar, with another king named Abimelech. said, this is my wife. Abimelech looks out the window, sees Isaac caressing his wife, says, hey, that's your wife. God again intervenes. And now, here we have Judah doing the same thing. Judah is afraid, that, uh, his, his, is afraid because of his son, and his line is threatened almost out of existence. It's going to just die right there. God intervenes through, again, an unbeliever, or well, I should say a, a, a non-Hebrew, and uh, Tamar comes to the rescue. So in each case, God used a righteous, or I should say God used a Gentile to act more righteously than his own people. God intervened to save the line. Again, the point, God's purpose in our lives will still be accomplished in spite of what we do and in spite of what our family has done. Ah, let's pray. Our Father, we don't want to grow old before we grow up. We want to grow up. We want to mature as we grow old. We don't want to get to the point of just spiritual maintenance, but we want to continue to listen to those proddings and those challenges that you give us as we run as you run right beside us and you won't let us forget, just as Judah tried to get away from the family and the, and the memories and all that he had done wrong, and then he took his compromise right on with him with this whole incident with Tamar. Father, thanks for being involved in Judah's life enough to allow these painful circumstances that preserved your promise that ultimately the Messiah would come from Judah. Thank you for what you do in our lives as well. We can look back, each of us, the family of upbringing that we've come from, whether it's godly or whether it's godless, you've brought us to this point where we are today, where we can recognize your hand of grace in our lives, your hand of love to bring about your purposes. Help us, Father, not to simply rest and where we are, but to continue to respond to the proddings that we might continue to grow that we might always, like the Apostle Paul said, I, I've not arrived yet, but I press on to know the Lord Jesus and the fellowship of his sufferings. Uh, this is our goal as well, Lord. Lord, we're grateful for the chapters here in Genesis. We're making our way through the story of Joseph, this, this little interlude of Judah, and how it points to our lives in your watch, care, and love for us. Pray that you'd be with us this week. 
and keep our minds focused on you, on your Son, Jesus Christ, and on the Spirit of God within us who prods us to deepen, uh, deepen our love and to grow. And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.